Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Football 365. Let's be honest, Liverpool are going to be champions. The top three look set in stone. The real drama will play out at the wrong end of the table. There's always one club sleepwalking into trouble. Is that Bournemouth? We'll know more after the proverbial relegation six-pointer against Watford. Suddenly, Eddie Howe has many questions to answer. Doesn't he, Darren? He does indeed. They can't defend. They don't look to have any spark or energy about them. They've lost, I think it's nine of the last 11. And they either can can work hard to scrape a win or they can literally wave the white flag. As things stand, they're heading towards relegation. And I don't mean slipping slowly towards it. I mean plummeting. And I think they, at least Norwich have got a bit of fight about them. At least they've got a bit of organisation and a cutting edge about them. They can eke out a result if need be. Bournemouth have nothing. And I fear that as far as Bournemouth are concerned, it might well be the season where their luck runs out. Mm. We know, Seb, that managerial business is a fashion business. With Eddie Howe, is he in danger of being stigmatised as a one-club, one-trick pony? One-trick pony might be a bit harsh, Mike, but I, I definitely think he's becoming... He's starting to slide out of that promising young English manager category. Darren touched on it before. I think one of the big problems for him is, is this endless question, endless questions about the defence. He isn't able to cure it. Bournemouth has been very unlucky at this season with injuries, but no matter the combination of, of players he uses as a back four or even a back three or five, they still seem just as vulnerable. And... Originally, it was a, a, a question of, right, well, these players are adjusting to the Premier League from, you know, from, from being essentially football league players for most of their careers. Then he started to sign players like Nathan Aki, uh, Jack Stacey came in, Chris Mepham. Uh, Lloyd Kelly, who's a very good player, hasn't really played because of injury. It's an awful lot of money has now been spent on that defence. Asmir Begovic as well, who you know, is no longer a, a first-choice player there, but you know, he, it, they bought him for a lot of money too. And... Over time, it starts to look like a deficiency in his own skill set. And I think that's the problem. I think also he was always going to be the victim of a little bit of snobbery because a, a club like Arsenal, when they have a new appointment to make, they're not going to go straight for an Eddie Howe just because of presumably how the fan base would react to that. Now there's a legitimate reason to avoid him or they're starting to become one at least. And that's that's a problem. Yeah, I think you mentioned Begovic. I think there are questions around the relationships. that There are a number of players with whom his relationships have broken down. And that's quite key because Begovic would appear absolutely to have the quality to play for a Bournemouth. But 
that he spoke himself about promises that were made to him that didn't materialise and he ended up going to play elsewhere. I think he's at Carabag, if I'm not mistaken. Um, That's right. Harry Arter, his relationship broke down with Eddie Howe as well. Other players too that, you know, they've gone on elsewhere. I think Benica Phobie's relationship with Eddie Howe broke down. So from that point of view, we we talk about the man management skills that, that has enabled him to lift this club from... What, what, League One up mm, to the Premier League? To League One, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, if, if you're really shining the spotlight on him, you would have to take the, the, the not-so-good along with the very good. And, and there are elements that would not really survive the scrutiny if you, were to, if you were to place it on him. I think they have to take a difficult decision, or he has to take a difficult decision, if he feels he can't keep them in the league. Does he... Do they go down together with a unity that has made them the force that they are mm. and maybe regroup and come back? Or does he stand aside and say, look, we need to retain our place in the Premier League so maybe someone else can take over? And that's a difficult decision. I know the chairman, Jeff Mostyn, has said, we've had more difficult times than this before when we were collecting money in buckets to save the club. So there is context. Different kind of difficult time, isn't it, really? Well, yeah. indeed, yeah. yeah. And, and they may, may see that as a reason to stay together and get out of it. But certainly, if you're talking about their life in the Premier League, it is perilously close to coming to an end. Yeah, because there's always a problem when a club is built in the image of a manager. You know, we've, we've seen it with Tony Pulis in the past. Yeah. Is that where we are now with, with Bournemouth and Eddie Howe? That they're too, you know, they're wedded together too solidly almost. And they might have to make a, a hard decision, sometimes a harsh decision, like, for instance, Brighton did with Chris Hooten at the end of last season. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the one question which is interesting is if, if, for instance, for argument's sake, Eddie Howe was to say, to announce tomorrow, I'm going to leave at the end of the season. And his last act at Bournemouth was to keep them in the Premier League and then move on. Who replaces him? Because not, not only who replaces him, but what, what, what are you searching for? Because this squad has been built around defensive side, around Eddie Howe's strengths as a coach. So they are built to counter-attack. And all the players from Wilson and King up front to... David Brooks, who's a fabulous player, who we shouldn't forget has been missing all season. That's sure. a very difficult... That's a, Their injury list has been horrendous. It's horrendous, and, and that is a big, significant asterisk against what's mm. happened this season. But who, who, is, who is within their reach from a recruiting standpoint? I mean, are you, are you able to attract a Premier League veteran, someone, a significant name from the continent? Or are you having to go back to the level below and say, right, well, this is, another, this is a job for somebody else to grow into? And that's a... That's not a, a situation I would welcome if I was a Bournemouth fan. See, I, 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 I think our bromance is coming to an end. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, never. <laughs> absolutely never. I'll fight for it. No. <laughs> but uh, I, I, they're, they're Bournemouth, and I think the, the football industry, full stop, is. Uh, sort of, sorry, forgive me. When I say they're Bournemouth, then that sounds fairly dismissive, and I don't intend it to the be. The internet's very forgiving, Darren. Don't worry about it. <laughs> At Um No, by that, I, I mean, we look at lots of clubs. We used to say, who would take over at Arsenal if Arsenal Wenger were to leave? You yeah. know, they found someone. You know, who would take over at Chelsea? You know, when they would do... I think the Bournemouth have done... They've had a wonderful run, and, and Eddie Howe's done a fantastic job there. But if he were not to be there anymore, there'd be no shortage of capable managers who could take over. I mean, first of all, they'd get a firefighter to keep them in the league. 
and then they would probably look for somebody who could maybe have another vision. And the thing about the Premier League that strikes me is that somebody like David Moyes, who did wonderful work at Everton before the Manchester United job, and then suddenly goes there, things don't work out, and afterwards he looks like a dinosaur. Mm. Because the, the, the game changes so rapidly, it evolves so much. And people rush to judgment. Now, if you look, you know, they're playing Watford on Sunday, Bournemouth. Yeah. You've got you know, Nigel Pearson there, who, to all intents and purposes, was run out of town at Leicester, rehabilitated to an extent in Belgium. He's come back and had a fantastic, was it 10 points out of 12 at Watford? Fantastic impact. He has done. I think what's interesting about Nigel Pearson is... is not interesting, it's a bit of a callous way of describing the circumstances around his departure from Leicester, obviously, given the situation there. Mm. But if you, if you listen to what people have to say about him as a coach, he actually fitted the bill for, uh, to, to cure all the deficiencies that, that Watford had early in the season. I'm um, speaking to some of the fans on Twitter around the time of, of Javi Gracia's sacking. Talk about, you know, splits in the squad about um, relating to what players wanted from their time at Watford. Read in your own book, Mike, about what the club ser- what, what, what aims the club serves in terms of being a, a stepping stone for players towards something else. And I think the ratios relating to that had shifted a little bit too much against them. Now, Pearson is someone that engenders good team spirit. He's a fine coach in the organisational sense. There's a clearly a simplification that's gone on at Watford, which helps everyone. I think one of the, the big problems over the last year or so there has been that the sort of critical imbalance between going forward and defending. There was never, they were never able to be anything other than far too reckless or far too negative, be it under Gracia or Kike Sanchez-Flores. Whereas Pearson, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, 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 a balance that has been struck there. And it's a good thing because I think Watford were too talented to go down. I know that's a terrible cliche which invites all sorts of judgment in about four months' yes, time. It's very forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so, yeah. Apparently so. But if you, if you look at the sort of the, the players there, some of them have been great stories. Think of Decore and Capu, even Delafay, I know he's a maddening footballer. Mm-hmm. But on his day, when you're when you're when you're sat in the stadium and he's running his, his man time after time after time, there isn't a more fun player in the league to watch, really. And Vicarage Road is a lovely place to go. So it's nice to see this. And I think I also, from a personal standpoint, I want to see Pearson get out from underneath all the uh, all the ridicule he suffered. Thinking of the sort of the ostrich press conference, because that's really been his career has sort of been distilled down to that which I think is terribly unfair given what he achieved in getting Leicester into the Premier League in the first place and keeping them there. I mean, I know what, what happened afterwards superseded all of that, but what an achievement that was given where they were at the yeah. turn of the year. Yeah. And he's brought in Craig Shakespeare with him as well. Again, another well-regarded coach. I think also what we need to factor into this particular situation is the, the local hero factor. Mm. Troy Deeney, mm. he's revered at that football club. Mm. Four years ago, people were saying, oh, they'll get rid of him soon because, you know, he's passing his sell-by date. He's still there, still a key sort of totemic figure. How important is he and people like him or players like him? He gave a flash interview after the last Premier League win and he was asked how important that win was. And his answer was really striking and symbolic of his attitude. He said pressure really is my mum working two or three jobs so that we could have a good Mm. Christmas and that's the kind of dose of reality that he brings not just to Watford but to football you know because we can get sucked into the bubble of believing that it's the be all and end all you know 90 minutes that determine whether you get the three points or not and I think 
that reality is what he doesn't just bring to the dressing room, but he brings to the club as a whole. And I, I think he's a leader. He's played under four different managers this season. But he leads from the front with his performances. And I was at Vicarage Road for the win over Manchester United. And he wasn't fit. He was only he's still really just finding his feet after coming back. But he put in a shift, a proper shift. And he led quite literally from the front. And not one single Man United player matched his work rate and his ability to cajole the players around him. And so when you're asking what he brings, that's what he brings. So. Galvanising force in the dressing room, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, Pearson's interesting because when, when they were looking for somebody to replace Gracia, they were looking for an English coach. Like the, Chris Hewton turned it down because it was only a contract until the end of the season. Mm. And he, he wanted longer than that. And Pearson quite clearly wanted a way back in, and, 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 and so he took it. And I agree with you. He, he lay the foundation. Everyone talks about the miracle under Ranieri at Leicester, but it was him coming in, getting them up, keeping them up. He laid the foundation for all of that. I I would slightly contend and, and, and say that he does have a tendency to be a bit dismissive sometimes. That's very funny. Uh, in yeah. press conferences, yeah. which I, I... And I think that, that, that ostrich thing kind of came about. He was yeah. someone we know, Ian Baker, and, and a terrific guy. And sometimes he puts himself in difficult situations needlessly. Mm. But as a coach, as a galvanising force, as a motivator, you can see he's got a very clear way of motivating his players, a consistency of tactics, team selection. And I think they'll stay up with him at the helm. And I think he'll earn himself a, a longer-term contract. I just think that model that they've got at Watford of hiring and firing, eventually they've got to realise you need consistency at a football club. You can't spend every season battling relegation. And as soon as somebody actually does look as they're going to do something like Flores, you throw him overboard and you start again. It doesn't work unless you're a Real Madrid where you can afford to... Or a Chelsea, you can afford to hire and fire. Yeah. Clubs reflect... The bigger picture of the of the, the owner's strategy, West Ham. Can we just distill it into they're waiting until 2021 so that Messrs Sullivan and Gold can sell the club, made a load of money from the Olympic Stadium, taxpayer-funded Olympic Stadium, by the way, and then walk off into the sunset. Are we in that? So, in that sense, is someone like David Moyes, admirable manager, just another sticking pastor? Because under this ownership, West Ham have kind of become, they're like a, a football club from a, a Guy Ritchie film. <laughs> they, 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 it's, it's sort of, I, I mean, I, I'm not even sure how to describe it because they're, they're, they're a club who, who seem to make the same mistakes again and again and again and never learn anything from them. And to me, I, I think David Moyes will do a, a decent job at West Ham. What I fear, just because it seems to happen time and again, is that... He'll do a decent job in the sense that he'll keep them up and he'll provide some stability. And then all of a sudden, that stability will, in the eyes of the owners, translate to a, a reason not to employ him anymore and to think, well, we're a little bit above this because, you know, something, something, finish above Spurs. Because West Ham have this... I mean, I, I looked through their record the other day. I was writing an article about West Ham and, and uh, what's interesting is they have a very short-term approach to progress in the sense that they, they want to try and perform a quantum leap in the game. And yet they've controlled the club for 10 years now. So all of that time, they, they could have built something more patiently so that, you know, instead of 
lunging at a, a Felipe Anderson or a Sebastian Allaire, you're, 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 you're buying a, a younger, more pliable batch of players that can grow into something as West Ham footballers, not just players that are seduced by the promise of a big contract. Now, why, why would anyone believe that that's about to change now? It's been 10 years. And one of the big worries is actually the, the sort of the fatalism which leaks out of that fan base. Because you, you hear the reaction, not just to Moyes, but to the owners. And, and when, when, you have a, 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 when you have supporters who, who don't have any enthusiasm for your club, that's very descriptive of the kind of ownership they've lived under. And that's absolutely damning as well. I think we've all been to London Stadium. We'll all have our opinions about them, about, about it even, and about sort of the, the sort of the almost the callousness that that represents is the sort of it's the, the short term fix, the the lunge towards a right a platform that can potentially move us to here in the football landscape. There's no there's no substance to any of that planning. It's just throw money at things and let's do this because that's the opposite of the thing that we've been doing, which has just gone wrong. It's that it's there's no there's no order. That's the word I'd use actually. There's the no only order. Thing I would, I would, I'd say against that is that. I think what you're describing, you could level that at a number yeah, of clubs absolutely. in the Premier yeah. League. You know, Arsenal being left to rot by Stan Kroenke. Yeah. You know, they've invested, but have they invested wisely? Yeah. Different kind of way, though, Darren. Like, it's, it's kind of with, with Arsenal, you, you see this, you see the stasis, absolutely. And the more you learn about Kroenke, you know, the, the more dispiriting that reality yeah. seems to be. But at West Ham, I feel there is ambition. It's just poorly focused. It's yeah, a sort of, we want to be this, but we don't quite know how to be that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's dysfunction, just a different yeah. flavour of dysfunction. I think the club need to appoint a director of football yeah. uh, who needs to kind of be there regardless of whatever manager comes in. Marianne, do, they, do they understand the role? Though? I don't think so. That's a good, good, good question. Yeah. A very good question. Because, I mean... <laughs> That he needs to, a director of football at West Ham would need to be there regardless of who comes in and yeah. who goes out. They, see, they treated the, the, the last guy as a super manager, basically. Well, they, yeah. they, allow, they allow Pellegrini essentially to appoint his own boss. Mm. So it shows a, a fundamental a misunderstanding for what the role is. It's meant to be the provider of continuity, the, the safeguard mm. for ideology and strategy. So if you're bringing a director of football in at the same time as a manager and then pushing him out when he leaves, it's just, it, there's no point. It doesn't serve any purpose. Because if you look at, for example, Leicester, Leicester wanted to bring in Soon Chu, the centre-half, before Rodgers arrived. And when he arrived, they brought him in. Now they're trying to sign the Turkish centre-half, Demiray, yeah, who, who he plays alongside, for, and, and they've got a really good understanding. If they do manage to get him, that's a really yeah. good central defensive Absolutely. partnership they have. But that's clear thinking along the lines that have enabled them to build aside the young, vibrant... Long-term thinking as well. Long-term thinking, exactly. Because once they sold Harry Maguire for £85 million, they hit it off. I mean, you know, they'd they'd got the replacement in place. He'd had his feet under the table uh, and, and he was able to get the run of games and the, uh, and, and the adaptation to Premier League football that he needed to be a success. I think that what West Ham have tried to do is, is support the men that they've got in. But when those men have hit trouble, and it's a combination of things because sometimes those men have hit trouble and then it's all fall, fallen apart. Sometimes you've got an inspirational player like an Arnautovic or a Dimitri Payet who suddenly decides from the clouds, I want to leave, I want to go elsewhere. And there is nothing you can do about a situation like that. But I think as far as a director of football is concerned, I mean, listen, this guy, Hughes lost when he was in with Pellegrini. He wanted to buy Roberto ahead of Fabianski. 
ahead, and he wanted him to be the first choice. And even when he was throwing goals in, he was still saying, stick with him, he'll come good. And actually, they took greater pride in letting Husios go than they did in letting Pellegrini go because they just had no faith whatsoever in the guy. And if you are going to get a director of football, and as you rightly say, A, you have to understand the role, and B, you have to give this guy time to actually have a vision, the kind of young players, as, yeah. you, as you say, that you need, so that you're not looking around for bargains in the transfer window, rummaging around the bargain basement, but you've got a clear plan. You can develop... You know, Connor Coventry is going to be a good player for them yes. at West Ham, you know. And they've got other good young players who are going to... You know, Nathan, oh, forgive me, I've forgotten his surname, but they've got a couple of good young players Brady who are going to be... Brady is a very, very good player. Yeah. Well, who, who are going to be... You know, they have players coming through the ranks and they're doing well from that point of view. And if they have good senior pros around them, like Mark Noble, for instance... <laughs> I mean, you know, Mark Noble, I don't want to sit here and say, cut him and he bleeds claret and blue, because that's not what he offers the club. You You're know? better than that, Darren. Yeah, well, indeed, you know. Well, I'm not, actually. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think during the period where things were going worse, and just, just to tell you a little bit about Pellegrini, when you went to Pellegrini's press conferences, he couldn't tell you why they couldn't defend set pieces. He couldn't give you any kind of plan for how they would get out of the trouble that they were in. He wouldn't give you any kind of insight into what, why Felipe Anderson and Sebastian Heller, two of his biggest signings, were not functioning the way they had done at their previous clubs. There was nothing... I, I don't really know why he gave media conferences because he gave you nothing that you could take away and, and say to yourself... Yeah, he has a plan for getting them out of the trouble that they're in. Mm. And so I think his sacking was utterly justified. I just hope the bar isn't set so low for David Moyes that West Ham are content again to stay in the league because there is still time to salvage something. My understanding is that they want him to have a good cut run and they, 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 they see the FA Cup with the big clubs not being interested in it mm. as winnable. And so it may well be that... That was a good performance in at Gillingham, wasn't it? Last very night? good performance. The first half, not so good. The second half, where you obviously... Under Pellegrini, they lost that game. Absolutely, yes. yes. Absolutely. And that's the problem. When you look at Michel Antonio crashing his car dressed as a snowman, <laughs> you know, exactly, you know, that tells you everything you need to know yeah. about the lack of discipline and the lack of authority that Pellegrini had. He won't have that, David Moyes. He will be able to inspire good performances and he'll be able to make the players aware that he's not a supply teacher. He's not the guy that you can take liberties with anymore. He's got the mandate to go in there and make big decisions. Yeah. I do worry for Jack Wilshire because I think the club, well, I know the club only wanted him to have a year and Pellegrini insisted on the three years. I, I think otherwise he would have lost him. And Wilshire's hardly played for them on a regular basis. I think the first chance they get, he may be yeah. moved yeah, on. Yeah. Let's look at another club with that's what can be charitably described as ownership issues, Newcastle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, are they locked in this self-destructive downward spiral? Yes. I mean, to be succinct, yes. <laughs> Shall we go now? <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like this has come up every time I've, I've been on the pod, Mike. Yes, yeah. absolutely they are. And um, if you look at sort of the recent... They're another club with a, a terrible injury list, which could be dismissed as just a, a symptom of the, Christ, uh, of the Christmas period. But in reality, it's just, it, it describes what has always been a very, very weak squad, very narrow squad. Mm. Amongst whom even the headline players are incredibly underwhelming. I think one of the biggest disappointments of the season has been Joe Ellington, who 
I have to believe, first of all, it's never a player's fault that he's been signed for any amount of money. He didn't ask for that. However, is that a £40 million player? Or is that a player that you that Newcastle's recruiting committee, whatever, whoever, whoever, whoever is involved within that group of people, whoever makes these decisions just thought, this is a player we can bounce for an extra 10 million quid in, in two years' time, or even a year. And what's been really disappointing is I, I think one of the um, one of the great underappreciated players the last couple of years, Salomon Rondon. I think sort of some of the, the performances he gave in isolation, surrounded by three defenders, maybe even a covering midfielder, he was a, an alpha male of a centre forward. I mean, he was excellent to watch. And they could have kept him for a fraction of the cost. Mm. And because they're wedded to this idea of, right, well, let's take a risk here and let's make a profit on player X, who has no track record of performing well in this country, who is on the basis of a... I mean, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, go to, to Wikipedia and, and look at Joe Ellington's scoring record. It's not a £40 million player. And you don't even need to go beyond the binary to see that. And yet there's just this... It, I, I, I can't. I can't really describe what Newcastle is. I, I don't have the vocabulary. It's just so dispiriting to watch it because you, every, at some point every season under Ashley or whoever's been managing them, there's been a moment which you think, with just a little bit more love and attention and a bit more ambition, this could be something. They had a nice little run before Christmas. But they, they did. I, I remember being at White Hart Lane when they knocked over Spurs. Now we know now that Spurs were not what we thought they were. Mm. But at the same time, that was a terrific performance, a great away performance. You just think, extra £50 million a season, proper strategy around, uh, around squad building, and this could be a, a three-dimensional football club rather than one that exists in this sort of this perpetual monochrome. And it's, it's, we, we have the same conversation every single time, and it's been, it's been a decade and a half now, Mike. Mm. It's been a really long time. And, uh, yeah, it is. It is uh, there is... I mean, I, I actually think that um, there's, a, there's a great argument for saying that football teams nearly always reflect the health of their ownership. Yes. And that's, not, that's just not in Newcastle's case. But if you look at someone like Burnley, Darren, by common consent, really good owners, mm. you know, pragmatic, mm. probably to a fault at times. You've got a, a terrific manager who gets the best. You know, is it? Maximum effort is the minimum requirement. But they're at Chelsea at the weekend. Are they just beginning to run out of momentum? I'm not so sure, you know, because Chelsea at Stamford Bridge are not that strong. Three or three wins in the last six. Before, sorry, two out of five before yesterday, of course, when they beat Nottingham Forest. But I think the way that Burnley play, they can unsettle a Chelsea defence that is unconvincing at best. And I think they've not managed to turn... The one thing that Stanford Bridge was under Lampard's managers was a, it was a fortress, you know, under Mourinho, uh, under Conte, um, and 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 I, I just think that as far as Burnley are concerned, they've got that capacity to score. It's weird with Burnley's, you know, because sometimes they can be absolutely abysmal, and they went through that period, and sometimes they can really be energetic and quite rock and roll. What they do get from their manager is an energy. And a belief that enables them to pull off pull off what would be a shock result, but maybe not, maybe not that much of a shock if they no, were to do no. it against mm. Chelsea. And I don't look at Burnley in the same way that I look at Newcastle and West Ham, because I think with Newcastle and West Ham, to a lesser extent, certainly with Newcastle, I totally agree. They're just making do. They're they're getting away with it. 
really. Their ambition is to stay in the league. Yes. There is nothing else mm. there. I, I think with Burnley, they, 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 they are ambitious, but he gets so much out of what are limited resources mm. and he gives them a belief and, and the club regardless of what happens they had that horrendous run last year where he looked for all intents and purposes to be on the way out and they yeah. stuck by him because they had a belief that he would get through that other clubs I don't think would have done that yeah belief is a you know a really underestimated thing isn't it so if you look at Norwich yes if you look at their predicament in terms of being cast drift at the bottom Many, many owners that we all know would just panic and, and fire the manager. There is an acceptance of the bigger picture there. They've got a, a terrific sporting director in Stuart Webber who sees the big picture. OK, you might say, are they a bit naive? But they're going to survive probable relegation, aren't they? I don't think I'll call it naive, too. I think, I think, it's, I think it's being realistic. I mean, there's, there's two ways that Norwich could go about the... There's a junction now in their season... Either they panic, like you say, Mike, and throw money around in the January transfer window, or they accept what they are, which is probably unlikely to survive. I think they're just understocked in a few cru crucial positions. I don't think they're strong enough in midfield. I think the burden on Timmy Puki is much too heavy, and defence, I'm not so sure about. But I, I, I think it's we've. Oh, Stuart Webber spoke. I can't remember which game it was. It was before, but it was a, a televised game where he was interviewed prior to, and, and uh, I think it was the game they lost to Watford, actually. Um, we said, yeah, no, we, 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 you know, we, we, we don't want to be relegated, but we can be. I'm paraphrasing, but that's mm. basically what he said. So I, I, I see it more as an adventure. I, I see it as almost, it almost to be mean spirited to, to criticise players like Pukki, but also Cantwell, who's a very, very good player. Mm. And so I think that what they'll come out with from this season is probably relegation, but probably also the future of the club, which was pretty tenuous not so long ago, around the time they sold James Madison. Mm. The future of the club far more secure as a result of broadcasting, but also the sale of potentially of someone like Canwell. Darren? You're just writhing in agony. It's like, oh, and it's like, I mustn't interrupt. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. I mustn't interrupt. I'm thinking I'm elsewhere, but I'm like, I can't interrupt. But I, I disagree I, in so much as... I, I think we got all these clubs in the championship that are straining, champing at the bit to get into the Premier League. Why? Because they want to mix it with the big boys, because they want to stay there, because they want to be able to have a bit of longevity. And I think I don't think buying in this transfer window, it, you know, mid-seat, is panicking. I, I think it's reacting to the fact that you've worked so hard to get into the top division. Let's try something to stay here. And the players that have done so well for them thus far... They've had a chance, but they don't have the quality to be able to keep them in the league. So I think mm. what they have to do is get more quality to try and stay in the league. But there is individual quality within the squad. You know, Buendia oh, is, is exceptional. Uh, and does that, is it almost counterproductive in as much as that in this window, our errands will probably be yeah, hunted by sense. Tottenham. Yeah, or Cantwell's also. already been linked to Manchester United, fancifully or not. Yeah, well. Buendia has is, is got a... You know, a list of admirers, yes. length of your arm. They might cash in, if or should they cash in? I, suppose I don't think they should cash in if they want to stay in the league. Yeah, I um, and, and I think I don't think those individual players should leave mid-season because if you're going to leave, leave in the summer. You know, when your job is done, one way or the other, and you can go somewhere else and get a good pre-season under your belt and whatnot. But I think 
as far as Norwich are concerned, look, at the start of the season, I remember uh, it might have been on here where I was saying it's naive to start a season in the Premier League with no signings. But Norwich were like, no, we've we've been OK. Pukki's going to score goals in the league, which he has done and he's, he's been fine. But you, no team can come into the toughest league, I believe, in the world and not make signings. You just can't do it. You know, you have to be able to be strong defensively as a starting point. Your home form keeps you in the league. Your away form determines where you finish. And I think as far as Norwich are concerned, they've not won enough games at home. Why? Because defensively, they're not strong enough. In midfield, they don't have an, enough protection for the back four. Uh, you know, they've got a, a tremendous ethic at the club and a lot of unity. And you're right, they will stand by him. They've got a great sporting director. All of those virtue, great. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the football. And if you haven't got the quality in the league, what are you doing it for? You go back in the championship, you'll spend another season striving, you'll get the promotion, you'll say, oh, haven't we done wonderful? Then you'll get in the league and say, no, but we won't spend because let's let's just budget straight to go down. I don't, I don't see what kind of plan that is. And I know that might sound quite harsh, but I just think if you get in the league, fight to stay there. Do what Bolton did. Do what... Bournemouth did do what so many of the clubs that have got up and stayed up have managed to do mm-hmm. invest in your squad if we're going to criticise Newcastle mm-hmm. for not investing but almost patronise Norwich and say well you know they're a nice little club they've had an adventure but they'll go down and they're doing well I, 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 I know you're going to throw me off the show no, for no, saying no, this. Actually, I don't no, disagree no, with that I mean I, I, no, I see Darren's point of view I, I just my worry is, is I'm, I'm a little fatalistic with football at the moment just in terms of what it's reasonable to expect as a fan from it. I say it, it's okay for them to to move in January. I just, you don't want to see the good work of the last 24 m- months really undone. So you want, you want to see, you want to see a sort of the a, a approach which differs from what QPR have done in the past, for instance, which is yes. you leverage yourself against your own security. And so you, you throw money at players and you do things, you do ridiculous things like you give them uh, relegation release clauses and you don't reduce their wages. Should, you, you just got to be careful. Mm. If, if, if Norwich have the opportunity to, for instance, pick up a couple of players who are peripheral within their current squads on loan, you know, a couple of veterans in there, that's, that's a different matter. You don't want to see the kind of the right, bring in forward acts for 25 million. Don't worry about having a medical. I'm yeah. sure it's all fine. That stuff. Don't do that stuff because so much of what, you know, what you're dealing with ultimately is a football club, something which has to be permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I take the, the, the Newcastle yeah. point, but you know where I'm going with yeah, this. Yeah. Norwich are another nice little club at the weekend, Manchester United. Nice <laughs> little club. <laughs> Lucky underdog. Yeah, is that the underdog? Yeah. Um, League Cup semi-finals, first legs this week. Yeah. Is Oli going to get a little bit of salvation at Manchester City's expense? I think he might do, you know, because at the moment City can't defend and they seem to be raising their game against the top teams. What does worry me, and I've written about this before, at the moment United are the team you can't trust. Mm. One week they can be outstanding against a top six side. The next, as they were against Arsenal, they can be awful. Arsenal were excellent in every area of the pitch. United were terrible in every area of the pitch. And I think as far as Solskjaer is concerned, I do not buy into this idea that Pogba is a problem for the club and overshadowing the club. You're Manchester United. You've got players who should want to run through brick walls for you. The problem that United have got is that their players are deciding when they turn up for work, and that can't be the case. 
I think this is an ideal opportunity for them to, to get back on it. But I was at Watford and they just did not turn up. I was Arsenal, they just did not turn up. And if it is the case, you know, Mike, that they're only turning up when they feel like it, then shame on those players. Because I think as far as Solskjaer is concerned, his job, his continued stay in the job, depends on him getting that team into the top four or winning a trophy. And if he doesn't do either of those things, you can't justify keeping him in the job. Mm. And if Pochettino was to take over and he's still available, then it would be a no-brainer to get him in at the end of the season. You can't have semi-detached players, whoever they are. No. But modern world is actually probably... If you're going to have a Mount Rushmore of, of modern football, Mino Raiola would be on there. <laughs> right next to George Mendes, yeah. Correct. Absolutely. Jesse Lingard's just signed up with him, funnily enough. Yeah. More trouble on the horizon for United? Potentially, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted with this situation because I have some opinions about what Mina Riola represents in football. However, I listen to... Keep what, them legal. Yep, absolutely. I know the <laughs> compliance unit will go through this before it comes out. Um, but I, I listened to, to what he had to say about Manchester United and I found myself agreeing with him in the sense of if you're an agent, if you're a player's representative of any type, do you want them going to Manchester United? So within that vein, I see the Paul Pogba situation as a 50-50 split in terms of blame, because could Paul Pogba have behaved a little bit more intelligently? Could he could he have been a bit smarter with his PR? Probably, if we're honest. However, if he's not engaged in your football project, that is Manchester United's fault, mm. because he was signed as a kind of the emblem of a new era. He was going to be the superstar. We remember the kind of the the fanfare over his signing. Now, United have failed to deliver on that side of the bargain. You know, Paul Pogba is entitled to think, for instance, OK, what you sold me originally, beyond the finances, has not come to pass. And he is a player with a career which uh, a finite length. He is a specially talented player. He is he's extremely gifted. He is entitled to look after himself now. Absolutely. And I don't really accept the kind of... I don't like the tone of what Paul Pogba has received from, not, not necessarily fans, but some of the media as well. I don't, I don't like the tone of that coverage. Because I think we all know there's no excuse now for, no, for not understanding that the issues uh, at Manchester United go well beyond not just the, their central midfield or their manager, but way to the top of the club. Everybody knows this. Mm. So there is, there is no excuse for being disingenuous about it, really. Yeah. If you look at a club with, who, who seem to be getting things right from the top downwards, and, yeah. and, you know, in, in harrowing circumstances, Leicester, mm. they're, they're, they're in the other, the Wednesday semi-final... Uh, against Aston Villa. Mm. Do you expect Leicester to win that trophy? Yes, I do. Not, not to win the trophy or the tie? Trophy. It'll be tough because if they get to the final, either of the two teams they play will be tough for them, depending on, obviously, as I say, if they turn up. But certainly I think they've got every chance because... Rogers, Brendan Rodgers is inspiring some special performances from that team. They're consistent. He beat West Ham with his B team, which meant the A team got a good old rest. Jamie Vardy in particular has had a good rest. Congratulations to him with another child. But just Rodgers is, is building something special there. And I think all over the park, they've got quality, they've got energy, they've got creativity, they've got defensive steel. They've got a balance to the side that is enabling him to get the best out of them. I think they'll finish in the Champions League places. And as I was saying before about the centre-half pairing that they're aiming to put together, that is going to give them a really good base 
going forward in terms of the next couple of seasons. And, and I can't see any reason why they should not beat Aston Villa fairly easily uh, as well. I, I just think that, that it's the other side of the draw that could be the way, because if either of those teams come to the party, then that they could have a real fight on their hands. But I don't see any reason why Leicester couldn't win it. With Villa, Seb, they basically gave away the FA Cup at Fulham. Yeah. They don't seem to be able to defend. Mm-hmm. Again, are we looking at a potential relegation team there? Let's carry out that with Tyron Mings' fitness. If he's fit and he's playing, completely different defence. I know he's not a perfect player, but he is by far their best centre-half. I just... I mean, I think what's happened with Villa this season is they have... They're slightly paying the cost for the circumstances under which they got promoted Mm. because that was a transient side that brought them up and they've had to rebuild it on the fly within the space of a single pre-season. And it's difficult and it's still built around some pretty heavy dependencies on a few individuals. Mm. Grealish, obviously. I think Mings is a terrific player. Second player ever to win an England cap. uh, Second ever player born in Bath. <laughs> to uh, to win an England cap, the first was in like eighteen ninety something or something. Right. We should get like a, a gold post box for that in my hometown. <laughs> but yeah, a great player. Joking aside, I'm just not convinced. I mean, one of the obviously the big loss is going to be John McGinn, who we think is going to be lost for three months mm-hmm. if he's going to be seen at all this season. So it's difficult. If they they get are, a bid for Jack Grealish this month. <sighs> it's such how a... much would it take to sell, and should he leave? No, on on, on the basis of what he means. I mean. To be at Villa Park when he's playing well and see the way those fans react to him is a special thing. It's a special place to be at the moment. I think, I think selling him now causes the ownership, the club's ownership, a problem. Yeah, I think that that'll be a very myopic decision because Jack Grealish is going to. They're going to be able to sell Jack Grealish for a lot of money whether he goes in January or at the end of the season. Right. And like I said, I think for, for, for Grealish, Grealish is a childhood Aston Villa fan. Also, if he does feel the need to move clubs, like Darren said earlier. He surely appreciates the need to go in in the summer when you get a pre-season, when you're not going in in the middle of, when you're not being jammed into whatever turmoil a, a club is fighting at that particular moment. I think that's that's a better way to go. But if I was a Villa fan, I would find it. It's like the it, it, it's like the Edmonton Oilers trading away Wayne Gretzky in a way. Mm-hmm. I know we're not dealing with the same caliber person within the context of the sport, but you just cannot do that. You cannot sell him in the middle of a season because he is he is the emblem of of. That's a bit cheesy, but the emblem of sort of hope in this season at the moment because he's special. He's an extremely talented player amongst a lot of other players who, with great respect, aren't. Mm. Let's look at the FA Cup mm. as well, the, the legacy of the FA Cup. I want to concentrate on Liverpool, not for the first time this season. There was something special, I felt, about that performance against Everton in terms of you know, it was obviously you know, a second-string side, but it embodied a collective belief in youth and an identifiable tribal culture. I thought it was fantastic, that performance. And, you know, when you go to clubs, you always hear names, don't you? Mm. Oh, this so-and-so is going to be some player. Mm. I heard that about Curtis Jones Mm. two or three years ago. That goal was fantastic. What did that performance say about Liverpool that hadn't been said already? It said that the attitude at at the club reflects the leadership at all levels. I think that was the performance of the season so far for me because you're you're effectively talking about half to side being kids against Everton's first team. And also about the confidence that they played with, the, the collective unity that they played with, and the fact that they are a group of kids who are fearless. 
And I think you're looking at those kids like we used to talk about Manchester United's wonder yeah. kids when they came through. Or the Arsenal's race. actually. Or Arsenal's, you know, yeah. yeah. And I, I think those kids, all of them, you know, listen, we know a few years ago when there were players like Suso and, and others coming through, we all talked, expected big things of them. They didn't all hit, hit, hit the mark, although to be fair, Suso's doing okay in Italy. But I think... These players all have something special about them, all have a consistency about them. Curtis Jones, for example, I think he's been involved in 20 of the last 21 goals at all levels that he's played uh, in the last couple of seasons. He's a guy who's got composure in front of goal. He can see a pass, he can take a chance uh, and he can create something out of nothing. But I just think all of those players, Harvey Elliott is going to be a special player. And he's got every chance. And, you know, it was interesting what Klopp said afterwards. He said, you know, I don't expect quality in every game, but there is a basic minimum requirement for playing for Liverpool and that is that you work hard when you go over the white line you work hard and that's what all of those players are prepared to do and it was interesting after they get the goal he ran over to Klopp didn't he I don't know if you yeah. just took more instruction from Klopp you know they're always learning they're always willing to learn there, there is not the ego uh, you know about going off to the, the the corner flag and it's all about me and whatever else there is that 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 willingness to just keep learning under Klopp. And I think that already he's got another clutch of players that are going to continue what he has already built at the club so yeah. far. And you can see he believes that simply by the grin on his face. It was just like, wow, yeah. my boys. Yeah. just want to end this by looking both at the FA Cup and the League Cup. Yeah. Where do you see the future of both competitions? I can't see both existing in 10 years. Really? I mean, uh, honestly, because I, I, I think there's a... We're approaching a tipping point where more and more managers with a lot of profiles starting to talk about the pressure being exerted on players. Mm. It's not being created by, let's say the League Cup, look, realistically, the FA Cup is, isn't untouchable within English football. It's mm. a, as it should be. As it should be. I, I completely agree. The problem is, is that we're, we're now starting to fill in the gaps everywhere they used to appear in football. Mm. So you're getting even, even things. So we're getting bigger World Cups. We're getting bigger European Championships. We're going to get a bigger Club World Cup from 2021, 20, 20 mm. I think that's mm. the next one. That moves to 24 teams. Clubs are creating their own problems by going on post-season tours as well as pre-season yes. tours. And there is a, an International Champions Cup in the middle of it. Football will not let itself rest at any point. And eventually, you're going to get a situation where the lobbying from wherever it comes, whether it be Klopp has spoken about it multiple times. I was in um, Mourinho's press conference the other day when he, when he called um, the Christmas schedule a crime, which is, with his usual, understatement. But he's kind of right. I mean... When we, we, we can look at an example. It was, it was a crime against biology, physiology, <laughs> uh, every <laughs> sort of yeah. science. Didn't he? he just said it was ridiculous. I, I, I agree. Noted physician, Jason Marino. <laughs> yeah, like, but been, I mean, you, you don't need to look more further than sort of Harry Kane's torn hamstring for, yeah. uh, for, for an Tom emblem. Tom Heaton's injury or Wesley's Tom Heaton's, injury. Absolutely, absolutely. James Milner went down on Sunday at, at, at Anfield. You know, these players are being pushed into what scientists call the red zone, but to an unsustainable level. Do you agree with that, Darren? Do you think that, that we're at a stage now where the fixture list will actually be changed irrevocably? It, it has to be, because what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is madness. Yeah. And although we all enjoy our football, we can't enjoy it at the expense of top-level football footballers being injured and and pushed into that red zone. And I, I think if you're asking what's going to happen to the two competitions, I think as far as the FA Cup is concerned, we may have to accept it as being a cup 
four fringe players, certainly at the very top, because the, the top clubs, if if the competition organisers won't recognise that the, the top clubs can't field top players in it after having two weeks of wall-to-wall football and having to push those players to fulfil their commitments in those games, then the clubs have to take their own decisions in terms of protecting their assets. And I think they will do. And I think in terms of the League Cup, they've got to scrap this two-legged semi-final nonsense. They do not need two legs for the semi-finals. I think there is is a good idea being mooted already for the FA Cup where you had the the smaller team plays at home so that you can level the playing field. And, And maybe... Well, not maybe, definitely. You need to put more money into both competitions because if you want to, if you want, I don't think you're going to save them at all. We have to ex- accept that they have to change with the times, but you do still have to make them worth competing in. And if there is more finances in both competitions, clubs will be interested in them. At the moment, they won't. Yeah. Well, I love what the FA Cup represents. Replays, sadly, have become untenable. As for the League Cup, go back to basics exclude all Premier League clubs. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.